I think remote work is really is a general purpose technology. It's more comparable to electrification. It's more comparable to the invention of the internal combustion engine or automobiles or something like that in the way that it's going to ripple through everything. It's going to have these long-standing big impacts. I'm not saying it's going to be like the aggregate economic impact is going to be bigger than or as big as electrification, but it's that kind of fundamental change. That's Adam Ozemek. He's an economist, the chief economist at the Economic Innovation Group, and he's something of an evangelist for remote work. As you'll hear, Adam thinks the rise of remote work is a really good thing, and also that it's a really important thing, that it's going to change the way we do a lot of things other than work. As you'll hear us discuss, it's already causing a lot of change to housing markets. As more Americans work remotely more often, it's changing what kind of homes they want and where they want them. That includes me. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I make this podcast at home. Specifically, I make it on Fire Island, which is a barrier island off the south shore of Long Island with no motor vehicles. You need to take a passenger ferry to get on and off the island, and it would be really impractical for me to live here and commute to an office in Manhattan. So going virtual has led me to change where I live for much of the year, and I'm not alone. As I discussed with Adam, the data on who works remotely is incomplete and conflicting. Some of the estimates you see are probably too low. The government asks people if they're working from home because of COVID, but a lot of people are like me. COVID isn't exactly the reason we're still working from home more than two years after the pandemic started. Adam cites research suggesting more than a third of jobs can be done entirely remotely, and even more jobs can be done remotely at least some of the time. We're talking about tens of millions of workers. The number of jobs that can be done remotely at least you know, one day a week is more than half. And so just because a job can be done remotely doesn't necessarily mean that it will be. We've seen a lot of complaining from managers and executives about that remote work is a problem, that it's interfering with collaboration, that it's interfering with productivity. And there's also been this sort of narrative that we've had this very tight labor market and we had wage growth. I mean, wage growth is now still not quite keeping up with inflation, which is very high. But we've had this environment where the the power seems to be on the side of the workers. Companies are really desperate to hire. And so they haven't had as much ability as usual to set conditions. If that changes and, you know, we're, we're starting to see certain signs of the economy cooling are a lot of these people whose job, you know, in theory can be done remotely, are they a lot of them going to be called back into the office? Because presumably if people expect that to happen to them in the future, that's going to affect their housing choices and various other choices they make. Yeah, there's a lot of sorting going on in the labor market, and it really goes both directions. And that's going to affect the share of jobs that are done remotely in the long run. So like one example would be a job that probably shouldn't be done remote where you need someone to be there five days a week. That's just like the highest productivity way to do it. But right now, the employers are dealing with the worker who has gone remote over the pandemic that really doesn't want to come back five days a week. You know, they're insisting of being home two to three days a week. And the reality is, in the long run, that person is probably going to shift out of this occupation if the reality is that the highest productivity way to do that job in a way that offsets the value to the worker. Like if the value to the firm of them being in person is higher than the value to the worker of being remote, then in the long run, I think you know, we're going to see people sorting out of occupations like that. And on the other hand, you're going to see people sorting into remote work occupations because that person is going to probably go out and seek a job that they can do remotely. And you know, people will start to consider, can this job be done remotely as an occupational choice characteristic, not just an employer choice characteristic? So that's going to take the longest to settle out is, you know, occupation choice being affected by people's preferences for remote work. 
In the shorter run, we're also going to see sorting between employers as you know different employers have different policies regarding remote work. And part of that can be industry too, because there are some occupations where how much you can work remote is going to depend on what industry you're working in. So for example, like if you work for marketing for like Pepsi, right, you might have to be uh, in person because everyone else at the company is in person, right? It's a a significantly factory-based, production-based industry. And for issues of fairness or, you know, consistent HR policy, a marketing person in that industry may find that they're going to be in the office most of the time. Versus if you work for marketing in a tech company, you know, you're probably going to be able to be remote. So they're sorting between employers, they're sorting between industries, they're sorting between occupations, and all those things are going to take some time to work out. And some of that is about preference too, right? But both on the employee side and, and on the firm side, that it's not necessarily the case that there's one right culture or one right practice to have in a given industry. You might have one firm that has a culture that makes in-person work important and another firm that has a culture that really values remote work. And so you could see within industry sorting on on that in both directions, presumably. And we're, and we're seeing this in tech companies and investment banks. You know, We're seeing different companies in the same industry making different choices about how much they want to focus on trying to draw the workers back into the office. Yeah, it, it's a very interesting question. In some circumstances, I think we might see that like fully remote or hybrid or not remote at all becomes the best practice. And it just like dominates. And that through competition and entry, the, the companies who quote unquote don't feel like it, you know, either, be, you know, sometimes it's because just the managers don't like it too. You have manager and owner preferences. So like say, you know, some owner of a small insurance company is like, I'm like working in person. I like managing by um, walking around. I like to see my employees like that just might not be the way that that industry is going to work in the long run. And so that person may be competed out of business. That firm may go under. And so in some some cases, you may have really consistent approaches. In others, there may be specialization, like a remote work, you know, in some industry, uh, the remote work firm is better at, you know, 24-hour customer service, right? They can always help you no matter where you are. They're more globally integrated because they're fully remote versus, you know, the in-person version. They're more likely to have, you know, uh, salespeople who are in your community to be able to meet with you and help you. So, yeah, you might get specialization creating diversity or you might get best practices creating homogenization. I think it probably will vary. Do you have a sense of how uniform the preferences are on the employee side? Is there any survey data on this? I mean, anecdotally, I know certain people who say, I really like going into the office, either because, you know, they, they like the rhythm of, of leaving their home or, you know, the, their home is noisy for whatever reason. You know, their, their spouse works at home or their, you know, their children are at home on certain days, that sort of thing. There are some people who, who say they like getting out. They prefer the work experience. They prefer that. I think most people I know prefer work from home and especially prefer the option to work at home. I mean, if you have an office and you can go into it, then that that option value seems like it strictly adds value for the worker. I guess the exception is some people like not just being in the office, they like having their coworkers around them in the office, either because they find that helps them work better or just because they enjoy the social experience of being in the office. Do you have a sense that there's, is there any significant worker preference on the in-person side or is the or is it strongly the case that companies will attract more workers and be able to pay less if they offer that remote work option so the the general ordering is that the most popular option is hybrid not all but like the largest share of workers prefer a hybrid approach where sometimes you're in the office sometimes you're remote and of course you have that option remote the next most common preference which is around 30% of people which is pretty significant is fully remote 
you know, that's important. That's a huge share of the labor market to prefer that option, uh, especially given, you know, as we discussed, how many occupations simply can't be remote. And, you know, that that's higher than the percent that employers are planning to keep fully remote. Uh, and then the least common option, but which is still, you know, a non-trivial share of people, is people who want to be full-time. So there are, you know, I forget what the percentage is, probably around like 20% or something like that, maybe 25%. Um, Nick Bloom has some really great survey data on this, that there are people who prefer to be in the office all the time and just don't like working remote. So let's talk about how this affects housing choices and, and housing markets, because either you know, either of these options changes the way that people think about the home that they want and need. And I sort of have a I have a list of a, of a few things that may happen the way that your preference about your home changes because you are working remotely full time or part time. So if you go full time remote, you can move basically anywhere. And so that means that, you know, you might move basically in the middle of nowhere or, you know, you live your employer is in a high cost metro area but you're going to move to somewhere that's much cheaper to live because the you you just prefer to, to take that effective increase in real income, maybe you get a larger house, whatever it is. If you're remote only some of the time, you might be willing to live farther away from the office because you're not going to have to commute as many days a week. Um, and that, again, can get you price advantages or you live somewhere that you like better or whatever it is. If you're going to work from home, either part or full time, you may feel that you need a larger home because you need workspace to account for the fact that you're spending more hours a day there and you're, you're doing things there that you didn't used to do. And then also, especially for, for higher income workers, partial work from home might make them more interested in owning a second home because they'll get more use out of the second home. They'll be able to work from there a significant amount of time. So what do you, am I missing key factors? And then we can talk about, you know, the, the relative importance of all of those and how they're changing home prices and, and home purchase behavior. No, I think that that's a great uh, overview. And you, the, if we look at people who were moving because of remote work, the most common things they said they were moving towards is less density and more affordable housing. And so I think that's pretty consistent with what you're seeing there, whether you're a full-time remote worker um, who can work from anywhere or you're a hybrid worker who, like you say, just, you know, now they can handle a longer commute. They're going to move farther away from like the central city um, where the prices are more expensive out to the beyond the suburbs into the sort of exurban areas or even into like rural areas within the metro area or on the outskirts of the metro area. So I think the big picture way to think of it is it allows more choice. A lot of people are going to choose differently. Um, there's not one different kind of choice, but on average, choice has been constrained by the desire to be near where the jobs are. So that's the way it's going to manifest its biggest change in choices is to be farther away from where the jobs are. And so then you're seeing that show up in, in home prices, right? You, you have a recent paper out about how you know, different characteristics of counties, whether they're large and urban or they're rural or various other things, they've had very different price trends since the COVID epidemic hit. What is that showing us about where people have been more inclined and less inclined to live, those home price trends? Yeah, so if you're looking for like, what are the places that are going to see the most out-migration to see the biggest loss in relative desirability of living there as a result of remote work, what I found is a, a couple of characteristics that sort of interact with each other. High home prices and also a lot of jobs there that could be done remotely. So you can think of places where house prices were high before, 
but aren't really going to lose a lot of people to work from home jobs. Like if you think of like a vacation town or something like that, like that's a place where it's expensive to be there. Like, you know, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people are able to work remote and they're like, thank God I don't have to live in Aspen anymore. You know what I mean? Like that's just not (laughs) happening. So when you're looking for like the effects of remote work, you've got to really look at like the interaction to them. Lots of remote jobs, high house prices. And then the third factor is this is just a correlate. It's a lot of people who are commuting into the place. So, like, if you have a like an economy where where there's access to the jobs there is so valuable that people are willing to drive long distances to get to those jobs, that's a pretty strong sign that that place is going to see um, you know out migration, relative decline in the value of the housing market there as a result of remote work. The city that it sounds most of all like you're describing right now is San Francisco, which has had some of the softest home prices of the major metros through the, the, the city of San Francisco itself. I mean, in New York, we've seen this crazy rebound in prices and rents. It's, you know, it's been tapering some in the last couple of months with interest rates going way up. But New York, the, you know, it became real cheap to rent an apartment in New York in early 2021. And then it is now much more expensive than it was before the pandemic to get an apartment in New York. But in San Francisco, the trend doesn't look like that. And so in San Francisco, you had extremely high prices and rents ahead of the pandemic. You also have an unusually large fraction of jobs that can be taken remote. And I, the, the metric I would look at for that is this Castle Systems is this company that does electronic key card systems for offices. So like you badge into the office, they've been publishing this index, basically showing which markets have the largest fraction of pre-pandemic levels of workers coming into the office. And you keep seeing the weakest numbers in the Silicon Valley uh, markets and in San Francisco. You've tech heavy. Some of that I assume is industry mix. Some of it I assume is a cultural matter that, you know, in certain places you just have more of an emphasis on return to work and in some you don't. But you're seeing both of those factors there. And then obviously San Francisco also was a place that a lot of people commuted into from surrounding counties and because of the home prices and in some cases from counties that are surrounding from quite far away, even commuting in from the Central Valley. So that's sort of a confluence of those three factors that you would have predict relative softness in home prices. And my understanding is we are, in fact, seeing that in the city of San Francisco. Yeah, absolutely. I think San Francisco is like ground zero for this. And one of the interesting things about San Francisco is like there, it doesn't even lend itself well to hybrid, right? Because like if you start like downtown San Francisco and you just start driving out, uh, it takes a long time to hit affordable housing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, you literally have to get to Tracy. Yeah, like a, how far away is that? 62 miles from San Francisco, basically due east. If there was no traffic at all, I think you can drive that in about 75 minutes. But uh, it's in practice going to be quite a bit longer than that. Right. So if you're doing that as your daily commute, what's that going to come out to be? You always used to see these, these news articles about so-called super commuters, and they would be commuting from places like that into San Francisco. Now, what, one thing I, I think was interesting about those super commuter stories is that they were usually middling income people. And there were very often people who worked unusual schedules where they didn't have to commute five days a week. You know, you might have a a firefighter who has 24-hour shifts would commute from a really long distance away. And so I I think, you know, we will presumably see more of that, not because people will start working 24-hour shifts, but the number of people who have jobs where they don't need to go in five days a week, it starts to make it look less crazy to commute 63 miles from Tracy to San Francisco. Yeah, I would guess that they're probably having really strong housing demand in Tracy, too. That would be my guess. It probably won't be affordable for that much longer, if it even is anymore. I I would sort of assume that those miserable exurban commutes of the sorts where people are living far out, not because it's, you know, it's in the beautiful mountains or something like that, but simply because that's how far away you have to get from San Francisco or New York or or wherever it is to find an affordable four-bedroom home for a person with a moderate income. 
wouldn't a lot of those people just leave the Bay Area entirely because of this trend? Yeah, so that and that was what I was going to get to is that like if you leave San Francisco, it's it, there's not a lot of cheap places to get to, and even Tracy. So I just looked it up. Uh, house prices over the last year up twenty five percent in Tracy. Oh wow! Um, but like New York lends itself much more to the hybrid model because if you drive two hours out of New York, you start to hit places that are super super cheap where you can buy a lot of land. Like, I think the best example of this is northeastern Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which is also seeing a ton of interest. But, like, you can still get, like, 100 acres out of northeastern Pennsylvania for not that much. Not that everyone wants 100 acres, but I do. So that's that's compelling <laughs> to me. Well, so actually, can we talk a little bit about you? Because you, you've been something of an evangelist for remote work. And I think that's related to the fact that you live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right? Well, first of all, describe Lancaster to people who are, who are not familiar with the area. Sure. Lancaster is about an hour and a half west of Philadelphia. It's in central Pennsylvania, south central Pennsylvania. It is a rural county with a lot of farmland, but then in the middle of the county, we have a little city of about 55,000 people, which is a nice little urban area. And then around that, we've got a good bit of suburbs too. So I live in the suburban part now. It's a nice, diverse county in terms of like the kinds of, you can live in a suburb or a rural or a little, a little town if you want. And it is, it's a commuting, increasingly a commuting place for people who live in Philadelphia or people who live in um, Washington, D.C. even. So it's got like relatively affordable housing compared to those places. How far is it? Because I, I was going to say it's sort of similarly distant from Baltimore as it is from Philadelphia. But you, it, you're getting people whose, whose locus of their professional work is in Washington, D.C. And they're, what is that, a two and a half hour trip to, to Washington, D.C.? That's a two and a half hour trip. And that's also where the locus of my professional work is now. But And I actually am technically, I guess you would say I'm a hybrid commuter now because I go to, into the office one day a month. So I come into D.C. once a month. Yeah, That's almost like a business trip at that point rather than a commute. Yeah, it's a gray line between business trip and commuter. Yeah. And so what are you seeing there on, on the ground? There's been an increase in the last three years or so of, of people who are relocating there and maintaining some professional connection to one of those larger cities, but making their life in Lancaster. Yeah, there's there's not any great real-time data to show this. You know, in a few years, we'll have better census data on all this stuff. But anecdotally, yeah, you hear you hear people who are moving here because they can work remotely now. You hear people sell their house and the prices are bid up from, you know, New Yorkers coming here. Because it's got that, that great mix of, um, you have these rural amenities, but you can also, you know, get a nice townhouse here or like a, a row home. Because housing is a is a really long-lived asset, you build a home and it lasts for decades and decades, it's hard for the housing market to flex quickly in responses to changes in what the nature of demand is. But I assume that should be the key medium-term thing that happens here, right? In, in places like Lancaster that have this increase in demand, and, and even more sharply in places, especially in the Mountain West, Boise and Bozeman, you have a number of these markets where home prices have been bid up in an insane way because the homes are still cheaper than they are in the places in California where the people moving there are coming from. The solution to that ultimately should be a significant increase in the amount of the housing stock in a place like Boise. But I guess two questions are, how long does it take 
to actually make the capital investments such that you have the housing stock aligned with where people are demanding it? And then is that being allowed to happen in a regulatory way? Because sometimes you have zoning and other barriers to actually supplying the amount of housing that's demanded in the market. Are we are we seeing that flex? And, and what's the timeline over which we'll have the, the shift of the housing units to match where people want them? You know, it's a hard moment to say how long it's going to take because it should be happening now, right? Like housing markets, housing construction should be much stronger at this point, given the demand that we've seen. And it's, you know, true with a lot of parts of the economy, like the demand is strong and supply is is behind the curve. And so there's a little bit of a mystery there. So uh, you have to be sort of a little bit more cautious in, in today in, in predicting when supply is going to kick in. But, you know, you're right in the medium term, we should absolutely see more construction in these places. And a lot of in, inelastic housing is more associated with urban areas, superstar cities, and their surrounding suburbs. It's less associated with like the sort of exurban and rural areas. So I am optimistic we're going to see, you know, a strong building response in these places. And, you know, some of these places are going to be um, you know, quite thankful to have growing population and you know, more kids in the school districts growing property tax revenues. It's just a little hard to see through that right now with the, all the noise and chaos in the housing market that we do have. Are you concerned about the sharp rise in interest rates in, interfering with that process? I mean, one, one of the effects that, we were, that we've been supposed to see and that we have been seeing from the Fed's interest rate hiking campaign is mortgage rates have gone up a lot. That seems to have taken the gas out of some of the insane home price increases that we've seen, and that should promote more more stability in those prices. But it also reduces the incentive to build new homes. Uh, if you're a home builder and you're you're thinking about making an investment in building new houses in Boise or wherever, uh, and then mortgage rates just mean that people's willingness to pay for those houses isn't what it used to be, that could interfere with that process of adding the home the housing units that we know we need in the country in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly rather we had done other things to reduce inflation rather than rely on interest rates because of the impact that they have on the supply side of the economy. And I wouldn't say that normally. Um, that's not like how I think we should think about business cycles in general. But in this particular business cycle where we're dealing with all these supply constraints, these temporary supply constraints, I would rather have seen the administration and Congress push more to increase supply in important areas and to not be stuck um, using interest rates as much as we are. That said, you know, we have seen active listings go up, which is an interesting phenomenon, new listings. And that's like kind of the opposite of what you would expect, right? If you thought that interest rates were going to have this massive negative effect on supply, why are people putting houses on the market now? Like it's kind of a little surprising, but the reality is that, you know, people were holding back selling their homes, I think, because they were hoping for higher and higher house prices. And you sort of like, if you think that prices are going to keep going up and up and up, the option value of holding a home off the market is high. Versus if you think, you know, prices are close to peaking, it's like, okay, time to unload my house. Housing prices are, are weird. Um, if, they, if housing prices are falling, people don't want to sell their homes because they sort of feel locked in by the negative equity. If housing prices are rising too fast, you end up with people who don't want to, leave, you know, move out of their houses because they're like, hey, look at the returns I'm getting. Why would I want to put this on the market right now? I mean, the other thing is home prices went up so much before they went down, and we don't have the same the the same sort of mortgage lending that we had in two thousand five, six, seven, where you had a lot of you know ninety seven percent financed kind of things. A lot fewer people have negative equity 
people still don't like they don't like to sell a house at a loss, but because they generally had to put twenty percent down, you're not going to see as many people who literally can't afford to sell their house because they it won't generate enough proceeds to pay off the mortgage loan. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the advantages of you know the the current um, you know economic problems compared to post Great Recession. Post Great Recession, you had a tremendous amount of lock in. It lasted a long time. There were a lot of places. Where you know it took you know closer to a decade for nominal house prices to get back to where they were, and so for people to you know not be underground anymore. And you know, it, I, I did some research showing that places where you had this huge drop in nominal prices that continued to hold back um, the supply of housing in those markets like even a long time later. So yeah, it's good we don't have uh, yet uh, outright falling house prices, and I hope we manage to avoid really big house price declines because that that's a nasty process. I want to talk about what these uh, trends mean for for certain specific kinds of of cities and and markets. Matt Iglesias has a piece out about how he's worried about Chicago, that basically he sees, you know, if if we have this sort of resorting of the sort that you described farther out of the city and may may save them some money, that that should lead to a structural decline in the prices of homes in places like Manhattan. Um, where just, you know, the the advantage of living in Manhattan is not what it once was. Uh, but prices were very high there to begin with. And so the the real estate that exists, people will occupy it. They'll just occupy it at a lower price. And similarly with the office space there, office rents won't be as high. Some businesses will decide that they don't need as much space because their employees don't come in as much. But New York's a desirable to, place to do business. And so, so some other companies will be attracted by those falling office rents. They'll move in. Manhattan will remain a very healthy urban ecosystem just at a lower price. He's concerned that there isn't enough price margin in a place like Chicago to make that work, uh, that you get to a point where just, you know, the too many units are not demanded at any price. It creates a, a negative fiscal spiral for the city where it can't afford to provide the sort of services that it would like to provide. And then that further causes people to move out of the city, the sort of thing that happened to places like Detroit. Do you worry about cities like Chicago in the way he describes? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely do. Um, what I wish that was happening was all these states uh, and state and local money that we were sending out was being used to shore up municipal finances to, you know, give cities rainy day funds to frankly, you know, even cut taxes in some places to help address, you know, the fact that these cities are not relatively as nice as they are compared to their suburbs. And in some places, cities have like these inefficiently high taxes um, and inefficient tax systems. And it's like, use this as a, to get to a better, more fiscally sound, safer uh, future rather than, you know, mailing out a completely unnecessary round of stimulus checks like they're doing in California. I'm not I'm not sure what's happening in Illinois, but I hope they're being a little more responsible with the money. Yeah. And then you talked a little bit about Aspen. And so Aspen is a place where it's significantly harder to develop real estate than it is even in a place like San Francisco or New York. Uh, and you see this with a lot of these vacation towns where basically, even though you are not in the center of a uh, highly developed city, you have the same sort of regulatory constraints on the expansion of supply. In some cases, like in Aspen, you're also like literally surrounded by mountains and that creates physical barriers to how the the area can grow and expand. And so those places have had some of the most insane price increases during COVID that exacerbates pre-existing problems they had where, you know, they, Aspen has a program to provide affordable housing to doctors um, because they need, they have a hospital that they need to staff. And, you know, if you make $300,000 as a uh, as a specialist doctor, you can't necessarily afford to buy a nice home in Aspen, or at least, you know, the, the sort of home that you can afford to buy is way less nice than the sort of home that you could afford to buy in any other market that you might live in. Um, so as that gets gets even more out of whack, 
Presumably those places, I mean, they should allow more building in the same way that cities should allow more building, but it sort of creates this, there's this opportunity there where home prices go way up and that improves your tax base and that sort of thing. But certain aspects of their economies that were dysfunctional are probably going to be even more dysfunctional after this shift where even more people would like to live in a beautiful place like Aspen. Yeah, that, it's very interesting. I would look to the land rents there because like the, everyone, you know, they've, they've just had this massive increase in wealth for everyone who owns a home there based on nothing that they did. Right. Like they did not do anything to earn this rent. They probably weren't even a lot of them looking to earn rents. They were just happy to be vacation there. So, you know, I think property taxes are a relatively efficient way to extract that value and to make sure that the community can provide the you know, basic level services that you need. You could also just, you know, raise doctor wages would probably help a little bit. <laughs> what are you watching uh, as we come out of the sort of I mean, we're, we're out of acute pandemic, but one of the key questions that people have had about all of these changes, both on the work side and on the housing side, is how permanent these things are. You know, did people move out of cities because they realize that they can do their job in a different way that makes them less tied to the office and that's going to persist forever? Did they move out of cities because the uh, certain amenities were not available because of COVID or because of a perception of disorder? I mean, I think that's a big issue in San Francisco, for example. People perceive San Francisco as having become significantly less safe over the last few years. Some of those trends, if they they could reverse, and then you would see reversals in in housing practices and maybe even in in location of work practices. What are you watching to figure out which things are actually going to stick and and which things are are going to go back to their pre-pandemic norms? Uh, housing markets and population flows are really fundamental things to look at. So, for example, in New York City, what we have seen is rents have bounced back past their pre-pandemic levels. It's a good sign, right? But by the same token, the city's estimate of population growth, people like to put out the headline, population back to normal in New York. What they mean is the flow of population is back to normal, which means the normal percent of people moving in and moving out is normal. It doesn't mean that they've recovered the lost population. They have not recovered their lost population in New York. And so, you know, then what's, what's happening here? Friends have gone back somewhat. Vacancies are relatively low, but population hasn't bounced back. I think one of the adjustment mechanisms we're seeing is people are consuming more housing per person. They're less likely to have roommates. You know, people aren't cramming in like they used to. They're, you know, especially if you live in New York and you work remotely sometimes, you might take a, a unit that was previously had four people, now it's gonna have two people. And so I think that's one of the the margins of adjustments that I'm watching for in cities is this are people actually coming back? Or are people that are living there just using up more space, buying more houses, forming more household because uh, things have been relatively cheaper? That's really important. Um, it's actually a significant economic distinction because, like, you know, that has a negative effect on your tax base. Even if you look at your vacancy rates, and you're like, ah, oh, this looks healthy. It looks like we're doing all right. Well, that's, you know. That that's not necessarily the case. And those things are going to take a while to play out. I think it's a related phenomenon. I, I think we're going to see a permanent decline in business travel. Uh, a lot of companies figured out that meetings they were doing in person could be done as virtual meetings during the pandemic. And they've kept doing that even when there's no COVID reason why they have to keep doing that. It saves a lot of money. It saves a lot of time. And those resources get to be reallocated in the economy uh, for, for purposes that are more productive and more enjoyable. Presumably, that's also true with this housing stuff, right? If we've unshackled people from their offices and they're moving into homes that work better for them than the, than the homes they otherwise would have lived in, that's some sort of increase in consumer welfare. Is that something you can measure just from the economic data? How do you how do you figure out how much we're better off because of that? 
Yeah, that's a good question. That would take some economists to work through the theory and the data and the stuff. And there's so many spillovers, too. Um, it'd be really hard to roll up some total estimate of welfare gains. Uh, I'm sure that someone will do it. But you have to look at so many different things and so many different indirect factors. I, I think remote work is really it is a general purpose technology which means it is going to have spillovers throughout industries, it is going to create all sorts of indirect impacts. You know, housing stock is one example, but like there are so many types of capital that need to adjust in the long run. There are so many organizational forms that are going to change. Businesses are going to change the entire ways, the entire way that they operate. There are going to be companies that are struggling to adapt to remote that are replaced by incumbents who figure out how to do it who build their company from ground up, remote first, they change their business processes. And like, it's more comparable to electrification. It's more comparable to the invention of the internal combustion engine or automobiles or something like that in the way that it's going to ripple through everything. And it's going to have these long-standing big impacts. Not, I'm not saying it's going to be like the aggregate economic impact is going to be bigger than, or as big as electrification, but it's that kind of fundamental change. You know, we, we already see uh, increases in business formation, right? So that's one thing. And my guess is that we're going to see that people are moving to lower cost of living areas and bringing some of their previously higher incomes with them, which is going to show up as real wage gains. So I'm, I'm optimistic about those things. Well, that's exciting. Why don't we leave that there for this week? My guest was Adam Ozemek, the chief economist at the Economic Innovation Group. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for our guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and the newsletter as a paying subscriber because your subscription directly funds the newsletter and podcast and makes this whole project possible. We'd also like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.